Nate McCullen, the horticulturist and facilities coordinator for the New England Wildflower Society, visits today on Kendra's Real Dirt, and we're going to talk about conservation of wildflowers and brewing compost tea. Hello and welcome to another edition of Kendrew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. In 1900, the founders of the Society for the Protection of Native Plants, which evolved into today's New England Wildflower Society, had a compelling vision, a plant conservation organization that would protect our native flora. Today, the Society is recognized as one of the nation's leading plant conservation organizations. The Society owns and operates Garden in the Woods, the largest landscape collection of wildflowers in the Northeast as its headquarters and as a public botanic garden. The garden, located in Framingham, Massachusetts, serves as New England's premier showcase of native plants and as a center for botanical and horticultural study and enjoyment. For over 30 years, the Society has focused on perfecting techniques to propagate and grow more than 450 species of native plants and selling them as an alternative to wild-collected plants. The Society owns and operates the Nasami Farm in Watley, Massachusetts, and it's a rapidly growing native plant nursery where they produce over 75,000 plants annually for homeowners, landscape professionals, restoration projects, and for towns. The mission of the New England Wildflower Society's Nasami Farm Nursery is to grow only locally sourced New England native plants from seeds sustainably collected by their staff and a network of volunteers throughout the region, focus on propagation and research to bring different and hard-to-grow plants into production, and partner with local nurseries to grow their propagated plants to retail size for customers. My guest today, Nate McCullen, does everything from operating tractors to fixing tractors to brewing compost tea to spreading mulch and to helping to care for the thousands of native plants at the New England Wildflower Society. My guest today is Nate McCullen, and he is the horticulturist and facilities coordinator for the New England Wildflower Society and located at the Garden in the Woods in Framingham, Massachusetts. Hello, Nate, and welcome. Hi, Ken. How are you doing? Uh, thanks for having me. You are so welcome. Now, we're going to talk about a lot of different things, but first of all, tell me about you. Where did you grow up, and where did you gain your horticultural experience? All right. Well, uh, I grew up in southern Pennsylvania, about an hour south of Philadelphia, um, right near the Delaware and Maryland line, um, kind of the epicenter for public horticulture, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate enough to work on a series of farms and golf courses before going to school at the University of Delaware, where I got my degree in public horticulture and plant science. Um, after that, I did a little stint at North Creek Nurseries, which was right around the corner from where I grew up. Um, they happened to specialize in growing native plants. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to that, I had done a short little six-month internship up here at Garden in the Woods, and uh, after about a year at North Creek, I got asked to come back to the garden full-time, and I've been here for about two years. Well, you are, the, the things you do for the garden, they're, you're like 12 people molded into one. <laughs> I mean, you can run a tractor and fix a tractor and weed and mulch, and you're, you're the ideal person. Yeah, you know, I think that horticulture um, is, best practice when you um, can do all the parts of the puzzle. Um, it's, it's good to have your foot in kind of everything, and um, it keeps you connected to everything, and um, 
anytime you can do something in-house for for a company or an organization i think it uh it keeps things moving along quicker and uh benefits um the well-being of the garden as a whole uh i think a little bit more well you really help keep it running and when i say it it's the garden in the woods which is well it's one of the largest collections of native plants in america yep and one of the oldest collections too um it's a real honor to work here um there's a lot of uh historical roots uh that have been laid down here over the years uh some really great horticulturalists have uh and botanists have come through this organization and uh I am honored to be a part of it uh now in 2012. Well, and if people come they will see some of the most fantastic examples of native plants but also growing so beautifully and all in amazing condition. And wh- why do you think the plants at Garden in the Woods do so well? Well, we've been using uh organic practices here for quite some time. Um, the garden was started by a man named Will Curtis back in the 1930s. It was his uh, kind of own personal garden and display garden for his design business. And uh, he started using shredded leaf mulch as a basis for taking care of his gardens in an organic matter. And uh, that practice has been in place since the 1930s. Um, we have been strictly organic now for about five or six years. We follow NOFA's guidelines for that. Um, but it's really the leaf mulch over the years, aside from anything else, that has uh, given us just the most fantastic soil to work with. Um, even though we kind of have a parent material that's a little rough, it's a uh, glacial till. Um, but we have about six to ten inches of organic matter covering uh, most of the garden, and really it's uh, a hands-off approach when we're planting out there. Um, the soil really takes care of the plants for us. You said NOFA. What does NOFA stand for? Um it's the Northeast Organic Farmers Association. Hmm. Um, and so it's just an organization that was put together by various people. And they just kind of uh, help you uh, figure out a basic guideline for what's organic and what's not organic. Um, obviously, that definition varies from person to person. Um, so it's always nice to pick a standard um, to kind of, you know, back your practices. Um, and that's the one that we've chosen to uh, follow. Well, the leaf mulch is amazing, and you put down, I guess, another layer of shredded leaves every single year, and really what you're doing is just following what the forest would do. Yeah, when you think about how a forest maintains itself, um, it drops its own material on top of itself, and so by kind of following Mother Nature's guidelines and saying, oh, well, you know, natural areas tend to look pretty good on their own, well, we should mimic that. And um, that's why we uh, make our own compost on site and add our own compost back onto our own plants and and into our own collection. And um, we have a primarily uh, oak-dominant canopy here. Um, So most of our shredded leaves are oak leaves, and most of the herbaceous material is uh, adapted quite well to growing under this oak canopy. And so by using these shredded oak leaves, we're just following Mother Nature's cues. Um, by shredding them, we're giving them some aesthetic value and also speeding up the process of decomposition. So we're helping things out a little bit. But uh, again, we're just really following what we think Mother Nature would want uh, to happen in, in kind of an untouched system. Well, when I was driving <coughs> to the Garden in the Woods, the Garden in the Woods is, is this 
preserve of many acres. Actually, how many acres is Garden in the Woods? We got about 45 acres here. Um, about 15 of them are cultivated. Uh, that 15 happens to kind of be in the heart of the property. Uh, and so we have a nice 30-acre buffer surrounding the entire property. Um, keeps us kind of secluded from the developments that are uh, surrounding us all. Well, people might be surprised when they drive there that you drive through a suburban neighborhood, an old suburban neighborhood. Then all of a sudden you make a turn and you're on a, a, an old road that goes through the woods. But I was going to say on, on my way to the garden last time, I saw bags of leaves on the curb <laughs> and people had had red mulch delivered. And I just, you know, it's amazing that we can't communicate that what they're bagging and throwing away is really what we want to use for a mulch. I know, and all they have to do is walk up the street and see the example. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's a classic 1950s development pretty much surrounding the entire property, a lot of impervious surface. Uh, there's some good horticulture going on in the neighborhoods, but, um, you know, there's still, um, and this goes for anywhere in America, a lot of practices in place that aren't organic, and I'm not sure that everybody is really sure of the reasons why um, that they're using these practices. Maybe they got influenced by a commercial, or by pressure from their neighbors, um, but organics are a great way to maintain your landscape. Um, there's pros and cons, but um, I feel like once you get it into action and uh, give it a few years to get going, um, that you start to see the results and you realize that um, the inputs aren't as much safer for your pets and your kids and all the animals and insects and in the environment and um, eventually it becomes more of a hands-off approach to um, maintaining your soil health which in turn is really the key to having good plant health. Well your plants are gorgeous and the, of course you have done this and continued this wonderful soil chain of replacing the nutrients and mulching and it's interesting to me that even though you don't need it, you've gotten into brewing compost tea. Most people who get into compost tea have problems or bad soil, uh, but uh, you don't have that problem, and yet you still have gotten into compost tea. But first of all, what is compost tea? Compost tea is simply making a, uh, a solution, uh, a water-based solution with your compost. Um, there's a few little tricks to it. It involves some aeration. Uh, it involves adding some natural sugars and foods to help keep the organisms alive. Uh, but essentially what you try to do is extract the nutrients and beneficial organisms that are alive in your compost and suspend them in water for ease of application. Um, for instance, uh, about 100 gallons of tea can be biologically equivalent to nearly 1,000 pounds of compost. Oh. Um, so you can imagine trying to spread 1,000 pounds of compost as a top dressing uh, when you could really just take about, you know, maybe five pounds of that compost, brew 100 gallons of tea, it'd be a lot easier to get that out onto the landscape in that form. Well, since you're not using that uh, necessarily as a soil drench in your situation, what are you using the tea for? Well, like you said, I, uh, I came in with suspicions. We were using it as a drench a few years ago, and we still do for new plantings and transplantings to try to reestablish the fungi and biology that's necessary to keep a healthy soil. Um, but I sent our soils out to um, Cornell's soil testing lab, and I got back just amazing results. Um, 
and I realized that we really didn't have to do anything to our standard uh, soil out there. So I said, well, what else can we use tea for? And I did some research, and I saw that people are using it as a foliar application uh, to combat some uh, powdery mildews for the most part. Um, and having a kind of not limited palette, but having a native plant palette, um, I picked two species of uh, phlox and monarda that were really prone to powdery mildew. And I decided to see what our tea could do to suppress this. Uh, you know, it doesn't kill the plant, but it's a pretty ugly ugly problem out there. Um, so I guided it towards that, and uh, I'm seeing some really great results. Yeah, and we're going to post a couple of pictures on the radio website at kendrews.com of, of some plants that were not treated and some plants that were treated. Uh, now you're making, well, you just made a new compost tea brewer, and it's huge. <laughs> it's uh, over 200 gallons. Is, is that what it is? Yeah, I took an old uh, agricultural holding container. Uh, they're ready, readily available out there on the market, and sometimes you can actually get them for free because farmers would use them to hold water or maybe hold some manures or something like that, but you can get them and clean them out. Um, this particular one's about 275 gallons in capacity, um, and I got a couple pieces of uh, the equipment donated. I invested about $200 into getting some aeration pumps, and uh, I'm ready to brew 275 gallons at a time now. Um, I wanted to step up the operation because uh, we do do a lot of planting and transplanting here. We also have uh, some stock beds where we do some plant production. Um, a lot of those things are getting divided um, via rhizomes. So I thought it would be really nice to have, um, you know, this tea ready to go when we are disrupting all that soil structure and disrupting the fungi and bacteria um, that, again, are so beneficial and essential for the health of all these plants. Well, I think that uh, s someone at home may or may not be able to make a compost tea brewer or even need that much compost tea. Uh, I, I think it would be great if more and more public places, botanical gardens, and maybe if master gardeners got together in, in an area and brewed the tea and then had special tea days, uh, like you do at Garden in the Woods, when people could, when members could bring their empty milk jugs and, and get some compost tea, because the compost tea has to be used within a certain amount of time. Yeah, compost tea is alive. I mean, compost is alive. Uh, it's full of all kinds of things, like fungi and nematodes. There's little arthropods in there. There's protozoa. There's bacteria. And when we have the right uh, players, the right people in, in place and in the right numbers, um, we need to make sure we keep them alive. I mentioned earlier that uh, in the brewing process we add some natural sugars, things like molasses help keep these organisms alive during the brew process. Um, and the aeration is important uh, because oxygen is essential for a lot of things to live in life, um, these uh, creatures being no exception. So after you're done brewing and turn off the aerator, you have about four hours to um, apply it. Um, as far as homeowners, a lot of people just take a five-gallon bucket, though, and make their own brewer. You can buy a simple fish pump at your local uh, aquarium store, um, and even just putting your compost in an old pantyhoe uh, can be quite effective with an air stone. Um, so that's kind of a way for um, homeowners to bring it bring it back to their property. Um, but 
when things are alive, you got to be careful and uh, you got to be mindful that these organisms are living and um, you got to get them into the ground and get them back into a comfortable spot um, before they um, just die inside of the solution. So, I can see as compost tea gets more and more popular that there's going to be a lot of quality control problems, or there could be people selling compost tea that is not alive, or maybe compost tea that was made from grass clippings that had herbicides on them or, or something like that. I, I guess there's almost no way to deal with that. We want to promote compost tea, but we have some problems maybe coming down the pike as well. Yeah, I think the homeowner has the advantage in making a compost that is created from on-site materials. Uh, if you're using your own garden clippings, um, if you're using uh, twigs and leaves from your own yard, and you know that you're not applying any herbicides or pesticides, uh, then you can be assured that you have a, a, at least a healthy base of parent material to make a good compost. Uh, for commercial applications, uh, as you mentioned, you need to make sure that you're um, getting a good compost that's free of those uh, potential chemical elements. Um, you can send it off to soil testing facilities, uh, and they'll let you know whether or not you have it. Another classic test is just trying to um, germinate some bean sprouts mostly, and um, at quite an early stage, if the bean sprouts tend to die off, um, that's usually an indication that there's not something good in there. Mm -hmm. Well, very quickly, can you sort of take me through the process of uh, setting up a batch of, of compost tea, just to describe it in as simple terms as you can? Sure. Um, I think the most important part is making sure your brewer is clean. Um, cleanliness to me is the number one step. Um, there's all kinds of different ways you can sanitize your brewer. Um, sometimes I use hydrogen peroxide. I'll also use Clorox bleach uh, sometimes. And making sure that I've killed off all the potential bad fungi and bacteria that may have stuck around from the last brew, um, I think is the first important step. Um, knowing that your water is clean is another important thing. Uh, for instance, if you're um, getting your water from a city source, um, it's best to aerate it for about 24 hours to let all the uh, chlorine or fluoride evaporate out of the water. Um, also, getting your water to room temperature is important. Uh, again, these things are alive. If you start with a really cold water, um, it's going to keep them asleep a lot longer, and that may force you to extend your brewing process. Um, there's really not much to it other than that. You have your aeration units. Um, you have a sock that they call it that you fill up with compost. <laughs> What's that like? Um, it's just a mesh material, really. Some of them are metal. Some of them are fabric. Uh, there's different research out there on how many uh, micron ratings there is. Some people suggest to use 300 micron mesh. Other people go up to the 600 mark. Um, as you start to brew your tea and kind of maybe get it tested and, and track its use or its benefits in your garden, um, that's one of the fun parts. You can kind of hone it in and make your own uh, approach to it. Uh, but you just fill this sock up, uh, you suspend it in the water that, again, is at ambient temperature um, and is being aerated. Um, you stick a source of aeration into the stock as a disturbance. Um, it's going to help break apart all the um, compost and then subsequently break off all the biology and nutrients uh, that are holding on to your compost. 
Um, then you have some agitators in your tank that just keep things moving around. Uh, you don't want your water to get stagnant at any point. Um, that would cause an anaerobic condition, um, and that really wouldn't be good for your tea. Um, the brewing length uh, varies based on uh, temperature, both of air and water, but usually it ranges from about 24 hours to 48 hours. Um, and then, as we mentioned earlier, after that, you're looking at about a four-hour range to get it uh, applied out onto the landscape in whatever form you're doing it, whether it's foliar or drench. Um, it's really going to be the most vibrant and alive um, right after you're done your brewing. So, Well, so the, this sock, just to explain a little bit more, it's like a giant tea bag. <laughs> so it's your tea bag and your compost is the tea and you put it in the water and keep that water agitated and oxygenated and uh, you've explained it pretty well you brew it for a while and uh, then you use it how do you how do you know whether it's worked you know that's one of the variables in it um you know organics and biology have a lot of variable factors in them um i mean i'm doing this experiment and tracking it and just keeping a visual cue on whether this foliar application is working or not and uh, I've set it up as a basic experiment, so I have control plots and I have test plots. So I'm making comparisons between them. Um, but I'm just making sure that I'm doing every part of the process in the correct way, making good good compost, getting it tested, because um, you're not going to make good tea without good compost. Um, but at the same time, while there is these variables, um, these variables are harmless uh, if they swing one way or the other. Um, one day might be a really good batch of tea, um, and without testing it, uh, you know, day to day, it's hard to know. But um, either way, at the end of the day, you can be assured that you're not putting anything really harmful onto your landscape. Um, so at the least, even if it's not full of good uh, bacteria and fungi, um, you're giving your plants a drink of water, whereas <laughs> overuse with synthetics um, can be very bad. Uh, that's when we lead to runoff, nutrient overloads in ponds, um, or just making an unsafe situation for our children and pets to interact with our landscape. Now, some people are concerned with things like E. coli um, and, you know, other bad bacteria that can happen inside of a, a compost. Um, I avoid that by not using animal manures, um, I think that's the main concern out there as far as health hazards with compost. But um, if you avoid using manures, you're uh, looking at a pretty safe substance. Does it foam up or anything? Is it? How do you? Yeah, know? the foam. The foam is a pretty good indicator that you have some things alive in there. Uh, the foam is kind of a byproduct. It's usually a collection of proteins. Um, the proteins are made from the organisms that we're targeting to extract in the water, like the fungi, bacteria, the nematodes, the protozoa. Uh, so foam's a good thing, um, especially in the early season. I mean, right now we've been getting some ups and downs temperatures, but um, for the most part, the core temperature of at least my compost pile has stayed pretty cool. I'm also helping that process along, again, by adding some natural sugars um, and some organic sources of food for these things. Um, so I think I mentioned the molasses. I also add some humic acids. Uh, I use a kelp powder. Um, I add some organic oats. 
Um, and all these things are sources of food for all these organisms that we want to suspend in the water and want to keep alive. Um, so I'm kind of coddling that along as well. I've been speaking with Nate McCullen, the horticulturist and facilities coordinator for the New England Wildflower Society. We've been talking about garden in the woods and brewing compost tea. And Nate, you've told me so many things, and we're going to have a lot of links on the webpage uh, for the radio show so that people can find out more about making their own compost tea. And I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. Thanks, Ken, and it was a pleasure to have you come visit the garden. Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks again. Brewing compost tea sounds like a pretty involved process, but I realized talking to Nate that my experiment about a year ago to brew some compost tea probably worked, and I threw the stuff out. It maybe isn't as hard as I thought it was. It seemed to have been working. I should have used it. Join me again next week for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. 